<laughs> a history of comedy. Coming up for homage in the archive. A history of comedy. It's several objects. A history of comedy. Coming up for homage in the archive. Hello and welcome to another episode of A History of Comedy in Several Objects, a podcast from the University of Kent about the British stand-up comedy archive. In this podcast, we uh, take just one item from the archive and we talk about it in detail to try and work out what it reveals about the nature of stand-up comedy. And I'm Ollie Double, I'm joined by my colleague Elspeth Miller, and we are very much the Fanny and Johnny Craddock of comedy archiving. I've heard of the Craddocks, but I'm... Uh, (laughs) All right, super interesting. So Fanny Craddock was a famous TV chef in the 70s. Right. And she was in a long-term relationship with Johnny Craddock. But I believe I'm correct in saying they weren't actually married, but that was secret at the time. She was very severe and kind of, you know, if you listen to her recipes now, they sound repellent. There's something quite interesting about them, which is that they did a a, a theatre tour Okay, so they were celebrities, so to cash in on this, they, they did this tour of a, a show, which was, a, a, you know, it was, a, it was a play, it was a fictional story, it wasn't just demonstrations of cooking, but as part of the narrative, they had to cook meals, right? Okay. <laughs> they toured with two actors, right? And uh, apparently, I heard a radio documentary about it once, and uh, although Fanny Craddock on her TV shows was always going about hygiene and the importance of hygiene around food, apparently she r- did not live by that rule. And so uh, in the programme, it interviewed the two actors who toured with them. And they were saying that they were touring with all these ingredients with no refrigeration. So there'd be prawns and things going increasingly rancid. And they'd be in hospital for food poisoning in the day and then by night having to eat more of the stuff <laughs> and say lines like, mm, this really is delicious. And things like that. So yeah, Fanny and Johnny Craddock. So was he a chef? Was yeah, well, he kind of helped her. Yeah. He helped her out in the show. Um, I, there's, uh, um, there's a, well, this is very rude, but uh, there's a salacious thing which is probably I don't know if it's true or not, but you know there were, there were sort of urban legends about um, Johnny Craddock turning to camera at the end of an episode where. She'd been showing how to make donuts, and he'd say, "And I hope all your donuts turn out like Fanny's," which you know it probably isn't true, but it's that kind. It was a really awkward kind of relationship. I mean, they were they were kind of odd, you know, oddball relationship. <laughs> anyway, that's nothing to do with what we're here to talk about today. So, what is the object that we have today? Well, we have two objects, I guess, in a sense. We have um, audio recordings um, of stand-up shows performed at the University of Kent um, by students. Okay, and uh, okay, well that's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, obviously, I, I'm going to I'm going to pretend I don't know about this because obviously it is directly to do with me. But so, why have we got recordings of comedy shows by students in the Stand Up Archive? This is completely to do with you. All right, okay. <laughs> so we, we have um, as part of your collection when you deposited material with us in 2015, you deposited material relating to your own kind of stand-up comedy career but also relating to um, kind of your work at the University of Kent so we have over 200 audio recordings of stand-up comedy shows which students um, on the doing drama degrees at the University of Kent specifically doing kind of the stand-up comedy elements of drama degrees um, recordings of them performing at the weekly comedy club um, so that began in 2001. I believe it was just called the Elliot Comedy Club. Actually, for that first year. I'll tell you what, it was called for the first three years. It wasn't, it, we, it went on to become Monkey Shine. Yeah. And that's what, you know, most of the students who ever did that um, have known it as. But when it first started, it had a terrible name. And what happened was we had a meeting with the students and we sort of kicked around different ideas for names for the show. And we came up with two pints of laughter and a packet of quips, right? Which was named not after the, um, you know, the not missed at all sitcom, but you know, aimed at, at teenagers. Uh, two pints of lager, a packet of crisps, but uh, but actually named after the original song that that was named after, which was by Splodgeness Abounds, a sort of comedy punk band. Uh, but the problem is, um, first of all, it looked it was really 
limiting in terms of graphic design, making a poster with a name that long. So you had to call it two pints of pack, lager and a pack of crisps, comedy club, like a stupidly long name. That's <laughs> Sorry, laughter and quips, I said. Anyway, whatever. And so it, that lasted amazingly three years. And then uh, we just went, oh, we, we needed a better name. And I just... I, I thought to hell with democracy. The students na- named this. I, we could have came to it as a as a thing. Uh, I just got a, a thesaurus and looked up jokes, and and it came out with different kind of words for jokes. And it, I saw the word monkey shine, which I believe means either like a practical joke or a physical bit of slapstick. And um, so we, uh, I thought, well, that sounds good, and it'll look good, good on a poster. And then I came up with this logo which has got a chimp's face in a light bulb so monkey shine and um yeah so that that yeah anyway sorry I I interrupted that was a a massive digression I always wondered where the name came from so thank you now you know (laughs) so yeah so yes we've got audio recordings from students performing at the weekly comedy club now named monkey shine yeah so the recordings we've got from 2001 which I believe was the first year you ran that kind of stand-up comedy module. Yeah. Um, and we've got recordings up to 2011. Right. When you've said they start, you started um, video recording rather than audio. Yeah, we, we, we recorded on mini-disc. I mean, it sounds so primitive and old-fashioned now, but back in 2001, mini-disc was a bit cutting edge. Oh, yeah, I had a mini-disc recorder, player. Uh, yeah. And they were quite good because you could split it into different tracks yeah. and title them and all that stuff. And the the quality, the sound quality was really great. It was amazingly better than cassette. Um, but at a certain point, you know, mini discs stopped being manufactured and we thought we had to do something different. So we started uh, filming them instead. And they're just um, non-physical files now. They're just video files. But we, I will deposit those to the to the archive at some point because I've, I've got all the ones since then. We've also got, um, so that's the main sort of deposit of student material. Yeah. We do also have material from Tien and Dewey, who was a student here. Tien and Dewey, yep, yeah. And now a stand-up comedian. Stand-up comedian. Um, so he's deposited um, lots of material, lots of posters and flyers in particular and programmes, um, sort of performance programmes that he's been involved in. Um, and then we've also got, business type records I guess relating to his comedy clubs that he's run um interestingly on kind of on digital formats so whereas in the past we've had you know bookings books physical books we've received kind of like booking spreadsheets yeah so so yeah so we do have some material from from students who have um studied stand-up comedy here yeah I think is a really important element of of what the stand-up comedy archive is about, really. I think when we... Well, you could probably talk more about this because you were involved in the establishment of the archive. But I think from from my perspective, certainly when I started on that project in 2015, although we were looking to sort of... Well, catalogue the material we'd already got, but also um, get more material in and really start creating a kind of... Uh, a national collection of stand-up comedy material because it's so relevant to teaching and research that's going on at Kent. It's, I thought it was really important that we kind of involve students who are studying, actively studying stand-up comedy, involve them as much as possible in what we were doing here in, in the archive. And obviously that was through kind of volunteers. So we had a number of your students volunteering, um, as we've heard on a previous episode. Um, but also, yeah, if we can kind of help by by archiving work that they're doing as well, I think that's a really important kind of community aspect of the stand up comedy archive. Yeah, and I think I think you know you might a cynic might say, uh, well, what, you know, the, if you're trying to make an, a national archive, you know, why include something that's only important in this very localized setting of the University of Kent? But I would say. For a start, well, it, it is based at Kent, so it sort of makes sense to to, to document what's happening here. But also, uh, one of the things we're talking about is the craft of stand-up. And I think every comedian learns how to do it. Most of them don't learn within the context of a course. They learn for themselves, uh, sort of autodidacts. But it's quite interesting hearing those first few steps in front of an audience getting laughs and then seeing what happens as it kind of continues. So what we've got is two recordings, as you say. The first is from 2001, 
And the second is actually from 2007, because the two people that we've got in this interview coming up are people who did the course in those years and have gone on to become professional comedians. So we have uh, Jimmy McGee, who uh, graduated in 2002, and Tom Horton, who graduated in 2008. And Tom was, for, for a number of years, uh, a member of The Noise Next Door, which is an improv comedy troupe. He went solo within the last year or so, uh, so he's just taken his first show up to Edinburgh. I, I should just say that Jimmy's one was recorded, it was the second ever one we did, and uh, the first ever one we did, I remember it really distinctly, although it's a long time ago now, it's 16 years ago nearly. Um, it was in a student bar, uh, there were a bunch of people who were going on to some kind of like fancy dress based uh, alcohol induced mayhem, right? You know, some kind of, you know, you dress up and you go out into town and get wasted. So they were in there waiting to go off to their their, their piss up, right? And, uh, and, and nobody had done this before. We weren't allowed to charge entry, which is normally death for comedy because you basically get an, a, a sort of uncommitted audience. And I went out there as compare and I had to work hard, solid for 10 minutes to get them on board because people were just not listening. And then gradually, you know, they kind of came on board. I did this silly song. They kind of came on board. They started laughing. And then the, it went it went an absolute treat. But, you know, everybody was kind of saying to me, oh, this is going to be a disaster before it started. So the, the first recording we're going to hear is the week after that. But the circumstances of this interview that we're just about to hear is that um, for the last, uh, well, for this year and then the previous two years, we've had Edinburgh previews, uh, okay, by Jimmy McGee, who's one of the interviewees, um, and uh, an invited guest. And this year, we had Jimmy and Tom, so both graduates of Kent on this occasion. So before the show, I took them to one side, and I thought it'd be really interesting for them to hear themselves as students I thought it'd be interesting and fun. <laughs> they thought it'd be horrible. Did you uh, pre-warn them before they arrived? I did. <laughs> and I think they were already okay. <laughs> kind of dreading it. But I think they I don't think they had any reason to dread. Uh, so let's have a listen to, to, to them back in June performing their Edinburgh previews to a small audience at the University of Kent. Edit. I actually went for a stage of coming back here every year to host the dance show in the Gulbenkian. And it just got to the stage where it just started getting creepier and creepier as I sort of got to 30, 31 years old. It was like, OK, maybe it's time for someone else to take over this. So I, I came back last a year ago, maybe? But only briefly. This is like the pro first proper time. How about you? I've been back... Uh, well, the last time I was here was this time last year doing Edinburgh previews. Um, it's now our third year doing them. Before that, I'd come down and I'd done... A, I mean, obviously, I'm now uh, a professor. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, was, I, I am officially a member of the professor academic McGee. staff. Um, you know, my career in tertiary education really kicked off. Um, I came back and taught the stand-up a little bit a couple of times um, so I've been back fairly regularly in the last three years mm -hmm. Okay, great so what we're going to do because both of you uh, started doing stand-up as undergraduates and what I thought would be fun for me anyway possibly not for you is to listen to some recordings There's of... no way that that would be fun <laughs> it will be I can't even listen to a recording of me from last week <laughs> okay. Well, no, okay. oh, so why, would you, why would you keep these well, because it's... The clues in the title, you know, the whole stand-up comedy yeah, archive thing? That's like sort the, of the idea. It's you like can't. the opposite of the BFG, just bottling nightmares. It's horrendous. <laughs> well, let's see if you think it's nightmares when you've heard it. So, first of all, we're going to listen to Jimmy uh, performing at uh, yeah. in, in Mungo's Bar in Elliot College on the 11th of October, 2001. Oh, good grief. And was I ever so young? For context, this was Jimmy's <laughs> second ever stand-up gig. Edit. My mother, she's a card, um, she had this fantastic habit of rummaging through my room when I was a teenager. Okay, now come on lads, what do 14-year-old boys do to pass the time? Uh, Smoking and wanking. That's exactly it. Come on, no one can deny that. Scrabble. You played Scrabble then? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I believe that. And uh, yeah, so she, she uh, one day found 
under my bed by my <coughs> porn collection, a can of butane gas. Butane lighter gas. Now instead of thinking perhaps I wanted to use this to refill my gas lighter that I went especially up to Camden Town to buy, she came up with an entirely crazy theory of her own. And, uh, and at this time, oh by the way, this is a woman who recorded over my favourite German porno movie with three hours of Irish Gaelic game. <laughs> Thanks, Mum. I remember the day, I remember the day I found out, she goes, I'm going to Sainsbury's. Would you like something? Sainsbury's, eh? That'll, uh, that'll take you about an hour, won't it? <laughs> Yes, yes, probably. Do you want to think? No, 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 I'm fine. Maybe some more loo roll. Anyway, so I popped in the video, and what do I get? Good afternoon and welcome to the third triannual Irish Games. Yeah, we've got curling, hurling, pissing, shitting, and fogging for you today. Anyway, I still had a wank, but. As you. So back to my story. At this, at this point in time, we, we had a lodger called Big Chris. And he was a big 18-stone punk. And uh, he was my brother's mate from uni. And uh, he was in his room playing on his computer. And my mum knocked on the door. And he goes, yeah, come in. And, and she walks in and she goes, Chris, Christian, I, I need a word with you. It's very serious. Oh, OK. It, it's about James. OK, so she, she, she kind of moved all the crap off his bed and found somewhere to sit, you know. His, bed was, his whole bedroom was covered in shit, like punk magazines and dodgy tissues, you know. <laughs> we got on really well. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then, and then I was up in my room, and there's a knock on my door, and I said, come in, and it was Big Chris. And um, he, was, he was standing by the door, literally doubled up, just sort of laughing and weeping at the same time, <laughs> while simultaneously being not able to breathe. He was literally just going... <laughs> What's up, Chris? And he proceeded to tell me what my mother had come in and said. And what happened was, she sat in the corner of the bed and she'd gone, I found something under James's bed. <laughs> okay. It was a can of butane gas. <laughs> now Chris didn't, wanna, Chris didn't want me to get in trouble about, about smoking, so he just played the incident. Okay. And so then she says, I think he's been snorting it <laughs> to get a better rush while masturbating. <laughs> one together and come up with a huge blamange. It's just stupid, but when I heard this, right, what a fucking good idea. I hadn't even thought of it. Butane, gas, fair enough, you know. So yeah, that was funny. And uh, has anybody ever laughed during a funeral? Really? No, oh, you might, you might like this. Yeah, I've laughed during a funeral. It was, it was my granddad's funeral, my mother's father. Um, Fortunately, he died quite recently. He was a lovely guy. I loved him, loved him to bits. He was, he was quite famous uh, in the 60s and stuff. He was, a, he was a horse racing jockey and a trainer and all this kind of stuff. And uh, he was also, incidentally, in possession of the largest scrotal sack of any human being ever born. Quite seriously. And you might wonder, how do I know the particular dimensions of my grandfather's bollock bag? Well, he, he used to get out the swimming pool, right, and, and, and put, put a towel around him, take off his swimming trunks, and his balls would just hang down underneath the towel. Incredible, incredibly talented man. So anyway, yeah, and, and, and he died, and, uh, and we found out that, that top racing commentator Peter O'Sullivan was going to do a eulogy. Now, we all know who Peter Sullivan is, don't we? Yeah! You know the racing guy? And it's, it's crafty boy, by nose, by a furlong, blah, 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 blah. Now you know. Yeah, him. And the thing is, because of what he sounded like, I was convinced that he was going to do his eulogy like that. And the thought of this really fucking entertainment, I couldn't get it out of my head. Honestly, the whole week before, all I could see was the funeral and the procession and everything. And Peter O'Sullivan being called up to do a eulogy. Cyril Mitchell was a lovely man, lovely man. Started off his training in Tatum Corner, Tatum Corner, rounded down to Epsom Downs, Epsom Downs, and moved on to Rygate, 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 Rygate. He moved on to Spain with his lovely wife, Roberta, had three children, had four. Played for the golf with Jimmy Tarbuck, had one from time, and one by nose. 
That's what I thought. And this amused me, something more often. So, so we're standing outside Leatherhead Crematorium. The entire family, it's like an hour before the, the thing. And uh, everyone's a bit sombre, you know, a bit, bit down, you know, uncles and aunts and all these people that I just haven't seen or ever met pretty much before. And I thought I'd lighten the mood. So I thought it'd be a wonderful, a wonderful occasion to uh, tell them about my Peter O'Sullivan theory. <laughs> Silly Jimmy. <laughs> Ooh, got a catchphrase. Anyway, and um, so I'm standing there and I, and I said, hey, hey, family, right, family. <laughs> you, you, this. you know that Peter O'Sullivan, right? It's going to be funny when he does his eulogy because he's going to stand there and go, Sarah Mitchell, Sarah Mitchell was a lovely man, lovely man. Started off training in Tatham Corner, actually, around in Tatham Corner, down to Epsom Downs, Epsom Downs, moved on to Rygate, moved on to Rygate, and then moved out to Spain with his lovely wife, Roberta, played some golf with Jimmy Tarbuck, and won by a nose. <laughs> they didn't like it. They didn't like it at all. And they were all staring at me with daggers in their eyes, you know, just, just, who, who's he? How can he, how can he be so terrible at a funeral? Now, the fact that nobody laughed only made me find the whole thing more amusing. <laughs> so when we got in there, we're sitting, we're sitting in, the, in the front row, and I was giggling, I couldn't stop giggling. I felt so guilty, it's my granddad's funeral, you know, but I was giggling when I was sitting there going, Peter O'Sullivan's going to be here in a minute. My sister was nudging me, and, you know, and everyone knew that I was laughing, and there was a couple of relatives at the back, you know, going, yes, hmm, that's the youngest grandchild, James. <laughs> He's the one with the, uh, beauty. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so we'll, we'll save the other one for a bit. So, <laughs> all right, so, so here's my thing. How much do you remember about that night? I mean, I remember nothing about that night, if I'm right. completely honest with you, because, you know, that was a long time ago. Yeah. But interestingly enough, I remember more of... I remember some of the things working on that. I remember, for example, the Peter O'Sullivan eulogy. I can very specifically remember you telling me that... Because I sort of would do it and I'd go... I'd, I'd busk it each time. So every time I did it, I'd sort of go, um, oh, yeah, and you do the eulogy, and I'd go, Peter O'Sullivan... And it'd make it up. And you said, what you need to do is make that into a performance piece of its own right. So the... The better that is, as in you write out the whole paragraph, you learn it, you perform it really well, that in itself will get a reaction, will probably get a round of applause because of the skill of that, aside from the... And I remember remembering that particularly, and I went out and I wrote Cyril Mitchell Born in, and I tried to make it, you know, and I worked on the pace of it, and then I learned it and learned it and learned it and learned it. And then that, that was the idea. So rather than... I was very inclined to do everything and almost throw it away. And you were like, no, that's a... You know, that's kind of stuck with me. And there's often times when I... I've been thinking that's a performance piece. That's a you know, it's not a kind of that will get me a round of applause, but it's like people respond to a well-crafted bit in that way, and so there's no need to den don't deny that. You know, when I did a routine about a diving instructor flirting with my girlfriend underwater, you know, I turned it into this underwater physical ballet of him. You know, and I, I made out that you know his sort of cock was swinging, you know, undulating in the water and all of this, and like a like a like a kind of mesmerising cobra and all that. And I really went for it physically, and so yeah, so I can remember that. I can't remember the night of the performance or anything, you know. But funnily enough, two of those jokes I did. I in my last show, I talked about finding my father's porno film that he made with his second wife. And um, I had this whole bit about it. And then I remembered the, the Gaelic Games idea. And so I, I put in a bit where I said that my... my uh, the, the bit came in through, you know, kids... Word of advice for parents, kids find your stuff. You know, I found my dad's porn, whatever. And I also said, oh, and, and parents find your stuff. My mum found my porn, recorded over it with Irish Gaelic Games. And then later on when I talk about the porn, when I talk about my parents telling me they were getting divorced... Um, and my mother saying, oh, you mustn't blame yourself. And I say, blame me? He's the one who's had all the affairs. I've got video evidence, unless you've recorded over it with eight hours of Irish Gaelic games. And yeah. it's, it's funny that that line, you know, <laughs> however many, 15 years later or whatever, is, you know, that was the end of my last show. 
Well, it's, it's interesting, yeah. is it? Because I think as a stand-up comedian, you have a big bottom draw. Where mm. Anything that you've done before, it might not have even worked the first time, but you kind of go, oh, maybe if I try it now in a different way. And I think the longer you've done it, the, the more stuff yeah. you've got in your And sometimes control. it can take an absolute age to put those things together. And you think how you, you, get, a, you get a bit that goes well, and then you, you think to yourself, how have I performed this without that up until now? How have I been getting away with this bit having not finished it? And the day I suddenly went, unless, of course, you've recorded over it with, you know, Irish Gaelic Games, it was, it was like, that's a bit now. Before, it was a sort of bit. And, it, you know, and it's, it's, it's amazing that sort of that it can be right in front of your nose for so long and you don't get there. A couple of things. First of all, it's interesting because this is you as a very young, naive comic, very inexperienced. But actually, a lot of it structurally is fine. Uh, there's the occasional bit where you go, OK, so your granddad had big balls, mm. but you didn't really know where to go with it. You came up with a lovely phrase, which is a uh, very talented man. Yeah. <laughs> but, you, you, you know, that visual image of the, of the scrotal sack hanging below the, the bottom of the towel is mm. something that, you know, with more experience, you could probably get a lot more out of. Well, I remember doing that bit at the BBC New Talent Awards and Robin Ince, who was comparing, I think he came back on and went, well, there you go. We've had the, we've had the, the, the whole gamut from such and such to... Grandad's scrotal sack, you know, here, here it is, at the, you know, and he referenced it. And I remember that bit sort of, you know, being funny in the moment that that gig, but then when I did it at a sort of, you know, out of, out of the comfort zone, professional, not professional, but, you know, gig in London, I remember people thinking, oh, that's a bit grim, you know, it just didn't have that. And that's when you sort of look back at Kent and you think maybe I did get away with certain bits because there was a, a friendly audience who knew me and had that vesting. But actually, when I listen back to that, what I'm thinking is, it didn't occur to me when I said, oh, really talented man, that that was actually a, quite a funny line. You know, yeah. that was probably the bit that I wasn't focused on. Yeah. But actually what I recognise and what I can see, what I can notice listening back to that is that I had the boldness of taking, I mean, I really take my time with those stories and I'm really not in a hurry and I'm really like, you know, I keep mentioning what is going on around Chris and my mother without actually the, the, the joke bit and really you know, take my time to get there. And that's something that actually I definitely felt that I had more... I was braver and I had more balls when I was doing that because I was unencumbered <laughs> by outside influences. No one had ever tried... You know, I'd never really done it before, so I didn't know how to, you know... If I'm doing stuff now, I'm much more professionalised and I probably... I mean, you clearly had balls. You're a very talented man. <laughs> <laughs> well, well there's, there's a thing there, isn't there, about economy? Because, I mean, I think the, 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 the sort of standard view is that comedy is best if it's economical. But we can't all be sort of Phyllis Diller with everything, mm. like, tightened up to this... But that's the thing you, 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 you pointed out that, I'm, you know, I referenced, you know, the, the name of the cemetery, uh, the name of the crematorium, rather. And that's, again, the sort of thing that actually, when you, when you listen to that, you think, well, that's the sort of nice information that makes it very real. This is something you, you go, you don't have to say, did that happen? Because you're going, Leatherhead Crematorium, on this day. And, and that's the sort of thing that probably now I wouldn't do, because I'd be too conscious of getting to the joke and getting rid of all the fat. It's a, it's a validating strategy in the sense of it makes people believe that it's true. It's a sort of manipulative thing in a way, mm. you know, although a real detail. Yeah. Um, but uh, what's interesting is that if you listen to somebody like Billy Connolly in his prime, he would take his time over stories in just that way, build the atmosphere, and that's why people enjoy it so much, I think. I think the longer you invest in a story without having the, the main sort of payoff and people are laughing continuously on all the... Tangents that you're taking, and you're, you know, he it sort of deliberately goes around the houses to get to, the, you know, the, the the more the payoff is going to be exciting anyway, because you've just invested so much in it. And I think that that's something that I can remember being much more in control of. I felt that when I went out on stage doing the Mungo's gigs, that people would give me the time to get through my story. My worry, my my, you know, what I have professionally now is often a sense at a gig where people won't give you the time to get. A story that long out. Well, that's what I was going to say. I think when writing material, do you find you can have more flavour maybe if you're telling a story that's coming 40 minutes into an hour-long show as opposed to a circuit gig? Because, you know, maybe in the hour-long show you might have to have the, the start story just going, prove you're funny, you've got to be funny, funny, funny. Yeah, And once definitely. you've got the confidence, then you can start flavouring it. In a, a long-form festival show, yeah, you would take your time over that story, but if you were to take that bit and try and do it in a, in a club, you would fillet it yeah, within an inch of its yeah, life yeah. and just get to the punchline quicker, but then lose some of the, the, the illustrative uh -huh. wording and the thing that really puts you in the... You know, the, the point of that is I wanted people to see Chris 
you know, this conversation Chris was having with my dainty mother sat on his kind of, you know, his horrible sort of, you know, in his messy room. You know, I wanted them to be able to visualise yeah. that, but I wouldn't try and do that at a club. I'd just go, bang, straight to the punchline. Yeah, yeah. Which is sad in a way. Very sad, yeah. And it's one of the things that you look back on and you think, I was so much bolder and braver when I wasn't a professional. And then the moment I started making money from doing this, I became much more aware of, you know... It, 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 it sort of clipped my wings slightly. I mean, you were talking about the audience, and I think it was the same when you were doing it as, as well, mm. Tom. It was a small bar, and we, we later moved it. The bar was rebuilt, and it became a much bigger audience, and the audience were less forgiving at that point, and there were people who would break into conversation at the bar and things like that. So the students had to sort of tighten their, their game up. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, one of the things I think listening back to that is you get the sense of the audience as your collaborator, do you know what I mean? Like, you can hear them. They want to know how the story goes. And you can hear the enjoyment in their laughter. It's not just laughter. You can hear the there's something about pleasure. And it feels like you and they are on a period, you know, oh, God, let's, let's see what's, how this is going to turn out. Not just the story, but also your ability as a comedian. Yeah, and people are, want, yeah, people are there to support you. People want you to do well. You know, you, you have gigs now like in, in, the real, in the real circuit now where... You're going. People have gone specifically to watch you die. That's what. That's actually what they're hoping for. Whereas in Mungo's, they're absolutely they're there. The, the slightly hint of oh, this is good. Like they'll they'll really go for it. I, I always found that absolutely. And of course, we you know we were the first every year that did it. So I think there was a definite sense of you know um, <laughs> people hadn't people didn't know what to expect. They didn't know if we were going to be any good or whatever, but you would still, you still had to make them laugh. It wasn't that we had an easy ride, but it was yes, just yeah. the whole atmosphere. Of it. And I can imagine later on in the years, as, you, as this became more familiar, that people probably walked past Mungo's and went, oh, there's a stand-up, yeah, and no, I went to that last year kind of thing. There must have been a point where... Right. It, but for us, this was just the first ever time any, there'd been any stand-up or Mungo's. And, you know, so it was a really exciting time, and I think we fed off the audience. Also, the drama department was much smaller and the bar was very much our bar like Elliot yeah, Bar yeah. was just all the drama students we were always in there we were always talking about each other's work we were, we were so complete we lived it 24 hours a day because um, when we weren't watching the stand-up shows we were watching the director shows we were watching the design we were, we were very aware of each, each other's contributions and work and we talked about it a lot so yeah. there was a real creative hub when we weren't in lectures and whatever, we were just in there getting pissed, talking about what comedy we liked or whatever. And it definitely became a, f- a feature of the department was that bar. And a lot of the best work was probably, you know, came out of us all socialising in that way. I think it's really interesting you say that it changed when the, r- when the room changed. Because I remember that first room, which was uh, people were sat on laps of other people. There were people poking heads around the door. It was literally just a massive squash of a box. And I remember um, going into the next room where there was just all this more space. And so just the laughter didn't travel around the room as, as effectively. It, it was all sort of caught up in this dead air that was around the... Ce- I don't know if the ceiling was literally higher, but mm. definitely back there were these big... And, and also there was... Uh, it, it was less closed off. You could hear... The, the, I remember people starting to play pool and stuff until we realised, no, maybe ban people from playing pool during the gig. But the clack of pool balls yeah. is really... Oh, yeah, yeah. God. <laughs> yeah. the Isn't there that... Yeah. Is it, I, think it's a, I think it's Frankie Boyle says it. He said that his worst heckle was someone walking into a pub gig watching him for two minutes and then going, there used to be a pool table in here. <laughs> <laughs> That's devastating. Uh, yeah. I, I think that, that certainly that, that sense of it being a happening, we, we enjoyed that in, in many ways because you're right, people were, people, everyone came, it was a thing, you know, it wasn't kind of, are you going to go to the comedy? It was like, well, that's this what we, we did on Friday nights. Yeah, and then, yeah. you know. I've never thought this before, but we have some re- recordings of very, very early alternative comedy gigs at the Elgin pub in Labrook Grove and other venues. And at that point, they were very much discovering how stand-up worked. And when you listen to those recordings, some, not, it doesn't all work. Some, some of it, you know, it's a bit naive about the form, but some of it's incredibly exciting. And actually, particularly the Labrook Grove gigs, because that was a regular gig for them, it's the same, I'd never thought of it before, but it's the same kind of thing. The audience are there, and they're clearly excited by 
what are these good guys going to do next? Mm-hmm. You know, I think. Well, then you, there's always you always read about or pick up on these these moments in history where everything kind of combined to make this is very exciting. To, you know, so for example, something like the music scene in London in the sort of early noughties when you know the Libertines or whoever it was would have the gigs in front rooms and pack it in, and there was this fervor, and you know, and then it kind of blows itself out and moves on into different things, or it gets sucked up and becomes very corporate, and they try and repeat it and all this kind of stuff. So obviously there is you know there was a sense that uh, in our little microcosm that was what we were enjoying we were enjoying you know the first sort of you know it was like being in an underground jazz bar for the first time or you know the Mm -hmm. blues or anything like that for us it was our little you know and also it had a sort of it had a did uh, and it sounds might sound a bit worthy but it did there was a sense that there was quite a freedom to it like i never ever thought i mean i i I, in my show in our shows in here the end of term big experimentals you know i had a pop at the head of drama like you know there was a sense that i felt walking out on that stage that it was like this is mine this is mine and i can say anything i like and i will say anything i'm you know i gaff jones the other guy that was in my year you know he did some outrageous things you know when he had the blood capsule and he basically ate a a, a sanitary towel on stage you know he was like a sort of you know a, a physical a, 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 he was like a, a a live you know artist he was a surreal yeah. artist essentially i think one of my i'm not I'm gonna blow my own trumpet here a bit but like just one of my favorite shows i did personally in that room was when i did a show about my it was my dad's birthday and i did a whole show about him and me and connecting and you know, what it meant and i sang a song to him at the end and I remember people coming up to me afterwards and going, I didn't realise comedy could also be that emotion as well. Like, it could also be sort of meaningful and bittersweet and sad and sort of... We're so ridiculously similar, Tom and I. I did show, <laughs> we really are. I did a show in here in front of an enlarged <laughs> picture of my father and it was all about this overbearing, you know, father figure. Well, yeah. and... It's ahead of the curve because if you think about dead dad shows... Yeah. That's, that's yeah, a trend yeah. Of and then ironically, I did my dead dad show sort of five years after the trend yeah. and got mocked in Edinburgh for, you know, by the critics going, right. oh, he's jumping on the dead dad show bandwagon. And you're like, um, you don't really get to choose when you keep <laughs> yeah. your dad dad show yeah, it's kind yeah. of there's, I mean, you, there is a fundamental how could, sort of how uh, considerate you could choose but you probably end up in prison afterwards yeah yeah exactly <laughs> there's a fundamental kind of you know thing that has to happen before you can do a dead yeah. dad show i'm interested to, uh, to go back to something we were talking about earlier about me giving you that advice about make that into a proper bit because something that when I, I... That was before I'd written my second stand-up book, Getting the Joke. And in that, I talk about this thing about what I call showing off, which is where the comedian will do a bit, and it's quite obviously a thing to show off their panache as a performer, to show, you know, it's high energy, it's exuberant, it normally comes to a climax, and at the end of it, there's, there's applause. And the end of it might be applause, and then pause, big punchline that undercuts what all just happened. Or it could yeah, just yeah. be big laugh, big applause. And, and I, I, hadn't, I, I wasn't aware that I was attuned to that possibility when I was teaching you. Well, I think, that, as a cynic would, would probably point out now, that there are people that deliberately construct material in that way to get that reaction. And, you know, I've seen... We've all seen some, some stand-up where you're like, this, you know, this is designed for applause breaks. This could have been delivered in another way, but it's... You know, it's a long sort of, yeah. you know, rehearsed piece building to a crescendo and then an undercutting punchline. And it just immediately makes people do that. Yeah. And there's a few people, I won't mention any names, but who come under that sort of, well, he does that to get, you know, to in order to rip the room. And there's a sort of almost a cynicism about that. But I think that, you know, the point is you're watching a performer, a vocal performer, and people who... There was a Canadian called... Um, oh, what is a Canadian called... It's really, really, really dark. Jason something or other. And he uh, does... Rouse. Rouse, yeah. And he does yeah. stuff about, you know, shooting puppies and fucking the bullet holes and all this kind of <laughs> stuff. And he's really, you know, he's raw. But his vocal skills on the microphone are absolutely incredible. I mean, he does the bullet noises. He does the yelp of the puppies and all of this. And he's... So to watch him as a technician of his yeah. voice is, is incredible, even if you don't like how dark his material is. And I think that's uh, something that, you know, we should be doing. There's no sense in underperforming something because stand-up's supposed to be just a guy with his hand in his pocket just, you know, chatting like he's in a pub. Because well, that's the thing about sort of... 
you know, really, really, that's when the applause break comes. I mean, the sort of the biggest epitome of that is doing musical comedy, and that's why people call it the cheating stick because you know you're getting a round of applause as soon as the song ends. Mm. And I've always, see, I've always been of the sort of person is just, just do what makes you funny. Don't worry about sort of the purity of it or the sort of whether or not it's the cheating stick or anything like that. It's just who are you? Why are you funny? What do you want to do? And hate's gonna hate. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, what I would say, what I think I observe is but trying to get the audience to laugh is a form of manipulation. And uh, my colleague Sophie Quirk wrote a whole book about how stand-up comedians manipulate, and that's, that's an inherent part of the craft. So it makes no difference whether you manipulate to make applause or to make laughter. So people who are snobby about that, they're not really understanding their craft, I think. Also, Harry Seacombe wrote a book, uh, a novel actually, about uh, a week in variety, because he started out in variety as a comic. Mm-hmm. And the, the character, the main character is kind of like him when he was a young man. But there's a, there's a, it's very interesting, there's, a, there's an older gay performer in it who his character is quite wary of because he's gay. But actually, Seekin makes him the most wise character in the, in the book. And he says this really interesting thing, which is he says, basically, you tell them what you're going to do, you tell them how they're going to react, then you do the thing and they react how you want to tell them. And so this is, this, is, this is set in, like, just after the war. So we can say that this knowledge of how to manipulate an audience to get them to do what you want to do, whether that's applause or laughter or whatever, it goes back, like, over half a century at least, and probably, you know, centuries before that. I've, I, of course, and I've always, I've always thought that, you know, stand-up is, is one big confidence trick. You know, stand-ups would make good confidence tricksters in another world or another existence because, essentially, that's what you're doing. You're conning... The audience into thinking that a uh, no no part of you is in any way anxious or nervous about being in front of them, even if in, inside you're going. Wah! The whole point is you're kind of just keeping. You know, it's when, when I discovered the power of the pause, when I realised how you know you you, you watch n- nervous new open spots come on stage and you immediately know that they're not in command of their craft, and then you watch an old pro just stroll on with his hand in his pocket and take ages just to take the mic out and say his name and you go ah and you immediately feel comfortable in that and that's just a trick that's a manipulation totally. Spin, taking the mic out you know slowly looking at the audience studying the front row with a raised eyebrow and then finally going all right my name is uh, jimmy Wingy. you know you might have been on stage for 20 seconds the nervous newer act would have walked straight on, grabbed the mic, you know, fumbled it out and gone, hello, I am Jimmy McGee. And that's how I used to do most of my gigs. And yeah. I think it's all part of that. That, that. that is just a trick that you learn, that the more calm and the more pausing and all that, the more comfortable the audience are and the more professional you look and at ease and all those things. Those first moments when you walk out on stage, I've definitely fallen foul where you just want to run on and, and you're, you're asking them to find you funny rather than telling them, yeah. I am in control and I am funny. That, even that sort of, it was that Steve Martin who says, um, ask an audience, are you all right? You're already sort of going, I hope you're okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, There's loads of stuff like that. Don't, like, don't give the up comp- the power straight away. Thanking the compare. Oh, let's have a round of applause for the compare. So. What are you talking about? Just get on and, you know, there's loads of people have different things. I've come on stage before and tried to recall a joke from the act who's just gone off. Mm. And essentially what you're saying there is, um, he was really good, wasn't he? Oh, I want to get a bit of him. And it's just, it's just not about... I mean, topping topping the previous act, I think that sometimes works. If I do my my blowjob joke where I say, you know, I'm posh and the first blowjob I ever got was off a boy called Rupert, quite often, if it's (laughs) toward the end of the set or whatever someone will come on afterwards and go, hello, my name's Rupert, you know, or something. So you do <laughs> right, get a yeah, lot yeah, of that. Yeah. But I, um, I definitely think that the... Um, hold on, what did you just say? Is the... Uh, what is that oh, the, the, pan- yeah, the pandering, the sort of, you know, I learned to... So Please like me. Mike, Mike Wilmot said something really funny to me. Right? I compared a show that we were on and the previous night someone else had compared it and they, they weren't particularly good and he'd said, ah, oh, you should compare the whole weekend, kid. You shouldn't be, you know. And I said, oh, I like, I like comparing. And he goes, yeah, of course you are. You're a good comparer. Of course you are. You're a natural panderer. <laughs> 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 it was such a sort of, you know, velvet-gloved punch in the face. <laughs> But that point of, you know, when you go out and you're newer, you do, you say, are you all right? Is everyone all right? Da, da, da. I think there's two things, actually. I think there's that. Well, it's pausing at the beginning or taking your time, which establishes status. It says, I'm in control here. Mm. And one of the key things I tell all students is, if you take the mic out of the stand, move the stand. Yeah. Literally, people can see you if you yeah. don't, but it says, I'm in charge. But then the other thing about pausing, and I, I say this a lot to students now, is don't undervalue that joke. 
by rushing to it. If you've got a really funny thing to say, you have to pause before it and make them wait. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they don't know it's good. Mm. Doing that tells them it's good. So I, I, in a lecture, I show a bit of... I can't remember who I show now. I think Stephen Carlin does it. And, and then I think there's one that, of Susan Kalman where the punchline is... T- take a ticket and it's, she's getting married right but it's because it's a sort of registry office it's re- the whole point is it, it, it deflates the romanticism that comes before it because it's like a supermarket deli counter used mm. to be with the take a ticket yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so she goes and she said to me no word of a lie take a ticket right and with that if you imagine if you just said and she said take a ticket it wouldn't be funny yeah mm. because you because it's about valuing it's about you know the value of that line yeah yeah and if you rush to it you don't I mean, I know there are times when it's, the, the, the correct timing is to rush to something because it's, that's the best way. There are, ca- you, there you are occasions... Build, you want to build up the momentum, especially when yeah. you're talking about, you know, um, uh, doing the horse racing bit. Mm. That is, that's all about momentum. You know, yeah, exactly. And I think there are times when you have to match the audience's energy. I've made yeah. mistakes yeah. in the past where I've come on and I've gone, I'm going to do my sort of deadpan Jack D-esque style tonight. And then I actually start too slowly. You feel like you suddenly realise that you're sort of languishing in third gear and you're not quite climbing up and the audience are too, they're too excited. And if you come on and you're too slow, you sort of, you miss, it's a misstep. So there are times when you walk on and you're just hit with, an, with energy and you just go, I have to match this. I have to go like, hey, how's everyone doing? Because they are like that. And then there are other times when you go, no, this is the night to, to come on. And, and, and then conversely, sometimes when they are really um, chatty and they're not listening and they're being assholes, that's the time to start going really quiet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you drop the mic and, you, and, and because then they, they stop being able to hear you so much. And they, you know, like usually a really rough night will get will get helped by an, an act coming on and being slow and deadpan and funny whereas if someone comes on and tries to be really loud and rash yeah, yeah. it's almost like the audience are just like yeah we're aware we know you're there we know you're there and we're not interested but then when they start to feel that you're not there because you're getting quieter they stop talking and they go what's happened yeah. to this you know they're like, and that's they're... total manipulation like that's just literally <laughs> like I'm dropping the mic away now <laughs> there's like um the ambulance service paying attention to the victims. Like, oh no, they'll pay attention to the quiet ones first. Yeah. <laughs> They're the ones that really need the yeah, attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, you, Tom, you were saying earlier about coming on all, all flustered and saying a line, calling back to the previous act, which yeah. is exactly how you started the bit with. Is it really? <laughs> yeah, but we're not going to hear that bit. Oh, you, good. You, you referred back to the previous act and all kinds of things, but. Well, we're going to hear a little bit from perhaps about a minute into the act. We're only going to hear a minute and a half. But what's interesting mm-hmm. is this was in the same venue as the one Jimmy, so it was, it was the student bar Mungo's. Um, and it was exactly six years to the day afterwards. So this was wow. the 11th of October, 2007. We did the... Um, did anyone play sport in here? Everyone's drama students, aren't they? But you do the thing in rugby, you have to do the sort of psych up at the beginning, which is ridiculous because I'm by far one of the smallest. You get all these massive, hulky, great people walking around angry, and me sort of with a banana going, energy. I'm always the guy on the bus who brings the jelly babies. They're good, they're good. black ones, you lots of energy. And uh, so, and it's ridiculous because all these guys are going, we're going to fucking kill them, we're going to rip their heads off. And I'm going, oh, yeah, come on. And then we had this, this huddle, so I was like sandwiched between these two massive guys. And the captain was walking around going, you, you're right, I want you to name one in one. What are you going to do to your opposite player? And the bloody big second row goes, oh, I'm going to rip his head off and shit down his mouth. And the other one goes, oh, I'm going to break his ankles and rip out his spine. And I'm thinking, well, don't, because you'll get a red card. <laughs> I literally came across and going, I'm going to chop his hands and feet off and string him up. And I was like, how? But, and he got to me and go, Horn, what are you going to do? And I went, whoa, well. Whoa. Oh, well, I'll probably tackle him. Um, and after that, so make sure he's okay. <laughs> and, so, and that's the whole thing. I, um... Edit. Okay, so Tom, do you remember doing that? I do remember doing that now. Yeah. I instantly, um, God, that's weird watching it back. I, one of the, the two things that really stuck out to me there is I, I still have this ability sometimes is just to, um, when I get to throw away lines, just sort of mumble them away and don't, just don't say, talking in sound bites, saying it concisely. Just sort of just have faith in that throwaway line. Like when you're saying, very talented man. Mm. That's, a, that's a 
I would have gone, mm, he's a very talented man. Whereas even if you just, you don't even have to just throw it away, but a very talented man, it's a, such a, it's a valid thing to say. And then also, the, uh, trying to really establish how ridiculous something is. This is ridiculous. This is insane. Mm. This is so mad and crazy. I used to get told off for saying ridiculous too much. Yeah. I think it's an easy go. You say, oh, it was ridiculous. And you go, no, you don't know quite how to go through this, so you have to point it out. Yeah, it's the same as like, this, I'm not lying, this yeah, yeah. actually happened. Yeah. <laughs> like, what struck me just... about that, and obviously, you know, you've, you're newer to stand-up than you are, obviously, because you've been performing in, the, yeah. in improv for so long, but mm-hmm. you definitely s- had a sense of your, your, your character and your voice on stage was sort of almost fully formed, I would say. Like, yeah. that was very much you being you. You're saying, you know... and within the context of the rugby uni society I'm a bit fey and I'm a bit of an arty boy and you know and the drama students loving that because that's one of the things that sort of knitted the drama students together was everyone sort of left school hating the jocks and all yeah, that totally. so you, you know your character within that even though clearly you know you were part of the rugby team you probably got on fine it's sort of it's well established yeah. believe, I believe you on the bus nibbling your I think yeah, yeah I think I always had that I was always very sure what my persona was. My problem was always writing. So there's things like that, 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 final, um, uh, um, that final joke of, oh, I'd, well, I'd probably tackle him mm. and then make sure he's okay. It should be, well, I'd probably tackle him and then I'd form the breakdown and try and really sort of over-analytically well, no, go Well, no, I would say, actually, you, you just, the emphasis was just on the first bit, not the second bit would have, you know, so actually it's like... Well, I'll you know because you're you're trying to form your answer in the moment, so they're kind of like, well, I died, I, you know, you know, and you're expecting well, to say rip his head off and piss on him or whatever, and you're going, I tackle him <laughs> correctly, uh, textbook, you know, I drop my head to the right and I make sure I hit him cleanly, and then I'd help him up and make sure he's okay, you know, it's that it's that complete, yeah, yeah, exactly, you know, and I like that line where you just go. I'd make sure he's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's quite sportsmanship. Yeah. It, there, the half-arsedness of it is actually part of the appeal. I think. Mm. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Probably make sure he's okay. Mm. Um, but also, it's interesting because structurally, that is a rule of three, actually, because you get, you have the first guy, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you go, well, you get a red card, and then you get the second guy, and you went, how are you going to do that? And then you get your your version. Yeah. So yeah. The, structurally, that's actually quite sound. You know, the, the individual bits, you know, you might tighten up or something. Yeah, I don't know what the mime was I did with the banana, but it was clearly hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but I think back then we were very... Because we were being taught it at the same time, we were very aware of structure in a way that actually, you know, I would imagine, when I, especially when I see open spots and stuff, who, who haven't had the luxury of what we had, which is the facilities and the kind of bedrock of, you know learning it and being taught it and thinking about it all the time you know and yeah. if you if you're just you know nipping to a pub after work to do your you know naughty secret little evening hobby and you're building it up then you know mm. you, you're probably not as aware of these things like rules of three and all that it's just much mm. more intuitive so and we were very you know we we had a good foundation block it, in order to put these things together because it is really just handy when someone labels something for you even if you then go oh i know that uh, mm. That's what that's called, is it? Mm. Right. Uh, yeah, because you sort of... You figured that out by watching stuff. But then someone goes, that's the rule of three. But equally, that goes that's back it. to the manipulation thing. You know, the idea that there's a rule of three. Oh, if you do three references, mm. you know, it has a nicer pace and rhythm and the callback. Callbacks is the biggest con in... In, in, in comedy, you know, Something my callback familiar. to the beat, but it completely sets the story. And what's amazing is when, again, when you do a routine for ages and ages, miss a callback, and then either someone else goes, you know, there's a callback, right? And then you do it, and it's like, yeah, it's totally a call. And it's just a little structural, you know, nugget that audiences absolutely love yeah. and makes you look. I suppose it, it makes your it galvanises the skill of your writing. It makes them go, ah, oh, no, he has. Yeah, he's he been in just, charge the whole time. Yeah, he he's isn't just the, saying the master. This. Yeah, he isn't just saying this. He's <laughs> de- deliberately put this together. Yeah. So sometimes you're listening to someone and it's a bit waffly, and you're like, I don't really see the skill in this. You're just telling me something. But then you know, but yeah, still manipulation. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Edit. Okay, Elspeth, uh, you heard that interview for the first time last night. Uh, what did you make of it? Um, the two main things that stood out for me were how professional they already sounded. They, so they were, they were both quite new to stand-up comedy. Yeah. But they already, as you were talking about in the interview, they had already kind of learned a lot of the kind of the stage 
tricks, I guess you'd call it, and how to structure a show. And yeah, I couldn't believe that they it, they were so new to comedy. I mean, it sounded so polished to me. Um, and the other thing that I took away was just how reflective they were, particularly when Jimmy was talking about how he took his time. I found it really interesting at that point when he was sort of starting comedy, he was he was willing to take his time and just sort of really build the joke. Whereas now he's kind of rushing, he says he's rushing off into the punchline, which I, I found was really interesting because I, th- I would have thought it would be the other way around in, in a sense. Because like, you, as you're new to comedy... You'd, you'd kind of rush and maybe not tell the story properly and try and get to that punchline. And maybe that's something you develop later, that kind of that way of telling a story. So. Well, I think, I think one of the things is that I'd set the gig up to be an ideal gig. Most of the time when you start out, you play horrible gigs because it's an open mic night. You might have been only allowed on stage on condition that you brought a couple of friends along that people call that a bringer and they've got to pay to get in as well. And so you're playing to a small audience of people who resent being there. Mm-hmm. Or, or sometimes just you know, the audience is mainly made up of other acts who are similarly uh, inexperienced. And so you're playing to a small, cold, slightly hostile audience. Whereas we were playing, it was anarchic, as I said before the interview. Um, but generally speaking, the audience was ridiculously supportive because they were watching their mates perform. So I think that gave them a sense of freedom. And I think Jimmy's talked a lot. To when I've spoken to him over the years about that sense of freedom. And I think it was a real shock for him when he performed to actual open mic gigs, how hard it was. And I think it took him quite a number of years for him to sort of, he kept kind of going away from it and going back to it until he went, no, this is actually what I want to do and I'm going to do it. So, yeah, I think, I think the disadvantage of setting them a nice gig up in, to, in which to learn is that then they have to learn how to do horrible gigs. So that's also been part of how I teach mm-hmm. is making them go off and do open mics while they're doing yeah. that so they get used to it. Well, we've got recordings as well as the Monkey Show recordings. We've got recordings of gigs in Whitstable. Yeah. And um, so are, they, are those the kind of the open mics you make them no, do? <laughs> uh, no, well, I've also made them do gigs in front of actual audiences of non... like outside of campus so that with an idea that they would be performing to regular folks but they would also have to go out and find their own gigs um so i'm not sure whether i've donated any of those recordings because i'm not sure how many of them i've still got certainly over the years i got better at making sure they did more of that stuff so that it wasn't if they wanted to keep going with it it wasn't such a shock but but as i said those um interviews were conducted just before they performed these Edinburgh previews, because they both went up to Edinburgh this year um, with um, Tom's show was called Class Half Empty and Jimmy's was called Jimmy McGee's Tribal Gathering. And I thought we could finish the episode by finding out how they got on. So I've got here a review from Dominic Cavendish in The Telegraph of Tom Horton's show Class Half Empty. And um, it's... Uh, a really cracking review. It's a four-star review, and it's obviously in the Telegraph. And Dominic Cavendish is a named critic. You know, he's a well-known comedy critic, so it's pretty good going. And the headline is: Has Jack Whitehall met his posh boy comic match? So <laughs> it's pretty good. And uh, it starts off: I'm going to tell you now. A lot of my material isn't very relatable. Tom Horton cheerily announces early on in a laugh-a-minute solo debut. So delightful, it might just propel him to bid the big time overnight. I should just say that Tom is, you know, from a very posh background. His dad was was very high up in the military. And indeed, his parents now live in the Tower of London. And oh, wow. yeah, they do. <laughs> he lives with them. And so the show is all about, you know, normally you talk about stuff the audience can relate to. And the whole show is about how nobody can relate to his life because it's so oddly posh. And um, the, the, the review ends, enough to make his high-flying father proud? Who knows, but in my book, this unexpected tour de force warrants a 21-gun salute. So that's Tom. Let's see how Jimmy got on. Um, so this is a review of... Now, Jimmy, it should just be said, was at the Free Fringe, so it's a slightly less... Well, it's less prestigious, but you're less likely to lose huge amounts of money than if you play one of, one of the big venues. And so he was performing for the Laughing Horse organisation at the Pear Tree venue 257. But he was reviewed in The Scotsman by another name critic, Kate Copstick, who, uh, you know, is, is a very respected comedy critic and, you know, not one to pull her punches if she doesn't like something. And again, he gets a four star review. And I'll read a bit bit from it. Uh, I'm hard pushed to remember a moment without laughter in the room. Jimmy is posh. 
<laughs> him too, apparently. And he knows how to use it. Few comics could wring such comic jeopardy out of a club sandwich. He is also a clever actor, and the other characters that pop up as he herds us through his hilarious hour are pitch perfect. He is wonderful with audience interaction, smartly self-effacing, and I cannot think of any possible reason for his not being a huge star. A, a little bit later, she says, he is a brilliant talent who really ought to be much better known than he is. So, a happy ending yeah, for our indeed. episode. <laughs> have you spoken to them since? Uh, I haven't, but Jimmy emailed to send me the um, the his review. Um, so, he was obviously quite pleased, as he should be. Okay, so this podcast isn't just about us telling you stuff. It's also about you getting involved. Get involved! There are various ways that you can get involved in this podcast, but first of all, you'll need to know how to contact us. You can email us via standup at kent.ac.uk. That's standup, all one word, no hyphen at kent.ac.uk. We're also on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at histcompod. And we're also on Facebook. We've got a Facebook page. Uh, The first way you can get involved is go to the catalogue, which you can find online, find a listing for a comedy object and nominate it. We'll talk about all nominated objects in future episodes. That's the vanilla version. And if you do that, we're going to send you a badge of the um, of the podcast and also a badge of the Stand Up Comedy Archive. So do remember to include a postal address. The chocolate chip version of getting involved is to send us an email, arrange to come into the Stand Up Comedy Archive, look at some material for yourself, record a short piece about one of the objects that you've seen. If you do this, you'll be given an amazing Stand Up Comedy Archive limited edition t-shirt in your appropriate clothing size and uh, a podcast badge as well Um, and we'll use those recordings in in future episodes and the stupidest way of getting involved is to record your own version of our theme tune and if we like it we'll use it in a future episode one last thing please leave a review of this podcast on itunes it's really important to us and if you do that Send us a screen grab of your review uh, on an email or something and we'll and leave a postal address and we'll send you a badge. A history of comedy and several objects is devised and presented by Dr. Oliver Double and Elspeth Miller for the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive. Brought to you by the University of Kent. This is made possible by the University of Kent's Public Engagement Research Fund. Photography by Matt Wilson and editing and production by Matt Hoss.